um, our denomination justice conference last fall, heard him speak, and immediately after he talked, Chris Lee and I knew that we wanted you to hear him speak about the issues that he is really trying to tackle and to make a difference, especially in our criminal justice system. So let me read to you a little bit about um, Rasan Hall, the director of, racial of the Racial Justice Program for the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. In this role, Rasan has helps develop the ACLU of Massachusetts's integrated advocacy approach to address racial justice issues. Through legislative advocacy, litigation, and community engagement, the program works on issues that deeply impact communities of color and historically disenfranchised communities. Prior to joining the ACLU, Rassam was the director of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Economic Justice, where his work included policy and legislative advocacy, community outreach, and maintaining a litigation caseload of voting rights, police misconduct, and public accommodations cases. Um, he is a graduate of The Ohio State University. Okay. I was waiting for you, John. <laughs> um, also, uh, he has his um, JD from Northeastern University School of Law. He's also... <laughs> you got outnumbered, John. Mike, where were you? Um, and um, Andover Newton Theological Seminary, or Theological School, he has an M his MDiv from there. He's an ordained reverend in the African... Methodist Episcopal Church. So please welcome with me, Rasan Hall. Thank you. Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. This is certainly an honor and a privilege to be here with you all this morning. I greet you all in Jesus' joy. I bring you greetings from my home church, St. Paul AME Church, across the river in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, where we are a Bible-believing, preaching, teaching, and loving church. This is really awesome. <laughs> and this is really weird. <laughs> but we're going to make it work. Um, thank you again, Bill, for the invitation. Um, and I want to thank Ha and Matt and Eric, who warmly greeted me when I and my wife when we got here, uh, made us feel at home and comfortable. Uh, wonderful praise and worship to just really ushered in the spirit of God, which is so important when we are in worship. And I would be remiss if I were not to acknowledge my lovely wife, Trinette. Uh, We're high school sweethearts, so it's, a, it's an amazing love story. We'll tell you about it one day, but I'm just <laughs> glad that she's here uh, with me. Uh, the Apostle Paul said, those who call upon the Lord shall be saved. But then in the book of Romans, he goes on to posit, how can they call on one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear of one unless someone has preached to them or the preacher has been sent? So let us gather together in a word of prayer that God would send a preacher. Lord, it is I, your humble servant, standing before your people, standing before your throne of grace. 
asking that you would decrease me, that you might increase in this place. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are my strength and my redeemer. Amen. I would like to lift up the passage of scripture coming from the New Testament Gospel of Matthew, uh, the fourth chapter, and I'll be reading verses 12 through 22, and I'll be reading it initially from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, but then a little later I'm going to read it again, or a portion of it from uh, the Message Version. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went into Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat, their father Zebedee preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat, and their father followed him. And I just realized, I just read that from the NIV. Technology, it's good when it works. <laughs> and it's also good when you have it accessible. There's a clicker in my coat pocket. All right. Now get. You'll come to understand what that means. Let's try this again with the, the message version, where we're all reading the same version. And this is just 18 through 22. Walking along the beach of the Lake Galilee, Jesus saw the two brothers, Simon later called Peter and Andrew. They were fishing, throwing their nets into the lake. It was their regular work. Jesus said to them, come with me, I'll make you a new kind of fisherman out of you. I'll show you how to catch men and women instead of perch and bass. They didn't ask a question but simply dropped their nets and followed. A short distance down the beach, they came up another pair of brothers, James and John, Zebedee's sons. These two were sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their fish nets. Jesus made the same offer to them, and they were just as quick to follow, abandoning their boat and their father. So entering into this conversation, I'd like us to think about a different context than the one in the scripture that was lifted up. And there's this seamless thread that I like 
to talk about uh, that Pastor Bill had mentioned when I was at uh, the conference on justice. There is this seamless thread that runs from this nation's history from slavery uh, to mass incarceration, and there is this continued legacy of injustice. There are currently 2.3 million people who are incarcerated in the United States of America. The United States has the fifth or has 5% of the world's prison or 5% of the world's population, but we have 25% of the world's prison population. We are incarcerating people at a rate that far surpasses any other nation in the world. Now, there are local law enforcement officials that say, well, the reason those other countries have such low incarceration rates is because they have draconian law enforcement measures like chopping off people's hands. I don't know about you all, but I've traveled a little bit, and the last time that I was in Amsterdam or the UK, they weren't chopping off people's hands, and their incarceration rates were far lower than ours but also particularly disturbing if the great rate of disparity in the number of people we incarcerate doesn't bother you. The racial disparities are significantly a problem as well. And you can see, I think, from this that in the United States, white people make up 64% of this country's population, but when you look at incarceration, it's about 39% of the population, and conversely, African-American or black make up roughly 13% of the population, but 40% of the prison population. Now, there might be some people who say, well, that's because those are the people who are committing the crimes. That's where all the crime is. That's where the neighborhoods that are being policed, and so that's why that has to happen. But there's another explanation or reality that runs through the history of this nation that explains this. And there's a definition that I like to use around structural racism. Because a lot of times when people talk about racism, it's easy for them to categorize it in the terms of hate. But structural racism isn't about hating someone. It's about systems. It's about beliefs. It's about values that operate irrespective of anyone's vitriolic rhetoric or malice towards another person. And particularly, the function of white supremacy in this world is a system that maintains it. And when I say white supremacy, I'm not talking about neo-Nazis or skinheads, but I'm talking about a system of beliefs and culture that centers and affirms white lives, values, property to the expense or detriment of other people throughout the world and it goes unexamined, and it goes uncritiqued. And you don't have to be a white person to maintain systems of white supremacy or structural racism. There are times when we are all complicit in maintaining those structures and systems. And when we begin to do that deep structural analysis and divorce ourselves from this notion of racism and hatred being tied together, we end up being in a much better place, a place where we're able to do more equitable and righteous and just work. Now, I like to put this up because when I start talking about slavery 
inevitably there's going to be somebody who says like, yeah, that was like so long ago, right? We just celebrated or acknowledged 1619 when the first enslaved Africans were brought to this country 400 years ago. And then in 1863, the Civil War ended 1865, the Emancipation Proclamation. That was so long ago. But when we're thinking about true, full, citizenship and exercise of the franchise and the full trajectory of history of enslavement and impress, uh, oppression, this notion of being self-made people, this notion of pulling oneself up by their bootstraps looks a little different in a context where there's not an equal playing field. And so when you look at this graphic, it shows that from 1619 to 1865, there was legalized slavery, but from 1865 to 1954, there was what was called Jim Crow, which was legalized segregation within the states. But even after 1954, which was the Brown versus Board of Education case that outlawed segregation and determined that separate is inherently unequal, because up until that time, that was the state of the law, there was still discrimination, there was still segregation. And it wasn't until eight, 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. In 1965, when the Voting Rights Act was passed, there have been people who have been celebrating 100 years of women's suffrage, which is a tremendous thing to celebrate, but it wasn't for all women. Because black women didn't have the opportunity to fully engage in the franchise until 1965. And so there's this image that is shown for people when we're talking about equity of people who are in a race and they're in the starting blocks. And there are some people just have a clear lane in front of them, but then there are other people who have obstacles, hurdles, pits in front of them that are interfering with their ability to move forward. And so when we think about these dark times, there is Jim Crow, and there is also, I like to say Jim had an uncle named Sam. The United States government was complicit in denying opportunities to people of color, particularly black people in this country. You think about the Social Security Administration Act of 1935. The best way to maintain wealth in a family is if you don't have to pay for aging parents. If your parents can receive Social Security benefits, that's one less mouth to feed. Well, with a compromise in the South, people who were excluded from that were domestic workers and agricultural laborers. Well, in the South, that was majority black people. The GI Bill, black soldiers went off to war to fight, came back. Most people who went to war were able to receive the GI Bill. They were given money from the government to either purchase a home or to get an education. But because of Jim Crow, segregation was still allowed, so black soldiers couldn't go to school. Or they were forced to go to crammed, overpacked, oversubscribed, historically black colleges or universities. Or in order to buy a home, they could not get a federally backed loan because of redlining, where the federal government, the Federal Housing Authority, raided neighborhoods by the concentration of people of color, again, particularly black people, in a certain neighborhood, and they would draw a red line around it, and if somebody was seeking a loan for that neighborhood, if it was outlined in red, they couldn't get it. 
And because of legalized segregation at the time, black people weren't able to get those federally backed loans. And the greatest driver of middle class wealth in this country was through the GI Bill and home ownership opportunities. And who was excluded from that? And this is separate and apart from discriminatory immigration laws that excluded large segments of people from Asia from coming into the country altogether. And so when I'm talking about white supremacy, these are the structures and systems that were in place that were denying people opportunity. The Federal Highway Administration, as white flight started happening because black people were fleeing for their lives from the South, from racism, oppression, and lynching, and they went to northern cities. They got on the rail lines and went north. People from Mississippi ended up in Chicago. People from Florida ended up in New York. People from Louisiana ended out in California. And as they fled to these communities, they faced the same level of racism and oppression in these northern cities. And as white people fled these communities, they had to get back to their jobs. And so the Federal Highway Administration made funding available to build highways, and those highways would run right through the heart of black communities, destroying businesses and taking people's homes through eminent domain. And then in the 60s, under the Johnson administration, there was this building up to address urban crime, because when you have communities where there are low educational opportunities, low employment opportunities, substandard housing stock, and people being over-policed and a lack of opportunities, there seems to be an uptick in crime, as well as rural poverty. And so President Johnson started his war on poverty. But because of the over-policing that was happening in communities' colors, and because of the divestment and the underfunding that was happening in those communities, and because of the over-policing and incidents of police brutality, there were uprisings in those communities, or what other folks would call riots. And as a result of those riots, there was this pivot from investing on social issues through the war on poverty to policing them through the war on crime. And there was this building out of this robust carceral infrastructure where more money was going to specialized police task force and more money was going to building out juvenile justice centers and more money was going to having more, um, uh, hiring more prosecutors and more laws were being put on the books to address this issue. And by the time we get to the 70s and 80s and the war on drugs begins, there's this huge funnel built out of this carceral infrastructure that just begins to feed people into this system. And so in 1968, I talked about some of those uprisings in communities of color. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This picture from Ferguson not too long ago. And so 50 years after the Kerner Commission report, because a study was done to find out what was going on in all these communities, and you see that rates of home ownership are comparable for black people as they were, to, they were in 1968, lagging 40 points behind the average white family. Employment rates are actually lower, or unemployment rates are actually higher than they were in 1968 for black people. And incarceration rates are skyrocketed. Now, there have been some other areas of progress, but these are indicators that are highly problematic. Similarly, when you look at Massachusetts, home ownership and employment rates are still disparate. And then this last statistic, one that is talked about in the Boston Globe series on race, the median wealth of a white family in the greater Boston area is $247,000. The median wealth of a black family in the greater Boston area is $8. And so when you think about the opportunities that were denied people to get home loans, denied people to get education, 
or having to take out loans to uh, pay for an education. The median becomes so low because people are getting such lower salaries but also incurring so much debt. And so when you think about the policing that happens in communities of color and the concentrations of poverty, it's hard to escape those facts. And so here we are as a body of believers, as Christians, as followers of Christ. And you all have been on this series of reimagining uh, our faith. And that requires us to have a faith that is not nestled in the comfort of our prayers, our fellowship, and our worship services, but to be in the sacrifices we make in the world on behalf of the least of these, the people who have been relegated to the margins of society. And so thinking about this scripture, Jesus had just come out of spending 40 days in the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan. He was tempted with food, what I like to say, pleasure. And Jesus said, man, shall not live on bread alone. And then he was tempted with protection, to cast himself down and the angels would swarm around to protect him. Those are concerns of the flesh, that protection. And Jesus said, scripture says we should not test our God. And then he was tempted with power. Satan says, bow down to me and I will give you all of these kingdoms. And Jesus said, we should worship only our God. But this is where he's coming from. He is denying pleasure. He is denying protection. He is denying power after having fasted in pre preparation for the beginning of his ministry. And when he comes out of the Judean desert, he doesn't go back to Nazareth where he's from, he goes to Galilee, he goes to the areas of Zebulun and Naphtali so that he could live through what was prophesied in the scriptures in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two. It says, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has shone. Now thinking back to the time of Isaiah, the tribes of Israel had been spread out and living in their own geographic areas and the Assyrians had come into this particular area and taken people over and led them to exile. And from time to time, they were allowed to come back, but they had been intermingled with the other pagans who were living in the surrounding area and lost fidelity to the God of Abraham and had taken on other customs and practices. And then fast forward to the time of Jesus, the same area is now under Roman rule. There was this disparity in wealth there was this exorbitant excising of taxes and leveraging of people's hard-earned income that they were living with. There were some people who had all of the money and most who didn't. But they had hope because for generations, 
They knew that despite where they were living, despite the oppression they were under, that unto them a child would be born, a son would be given. The government would be on his shoulders and he would be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And that there would be no end to his government and that he would reign from David's throne and establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Not with power, not with might, not with wealth, but with justice and righteousness. And so Jesus begins his ministry by proclaiming to all to hear, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called the disciples and he began his ministry of teaching and preaching and healing. And I appreciate the Gospel of Matthew because it takes particular effort to lift up this inversion of this new kingdom, that it's not the traditional notions of a kingdom, that it is not those who have been held in the highest esteem that will be remaining in power, but it is those who are exalted that will be made low, and those who are low will be exalted. That is the new frame, that is the reconciliation, that is the rescue mission that God has sent Jesus to accomplish. He is the God of the humble, he is a humble God. That's what this gospel is telling us. This is who Jesus is on the side of. He's showing up in the places where those who are of high esteem would not go being with the lepers and the blind and the centurions and the tax collectors. These are the people who Jesus made his company to do his work of reconciliation, to bring in and to usher in this new kingdom of God. He gives the Beatitudes and he talks specifically about those who would be blessed, the poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungry, the pure-hearted, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted the least of these. And with him every step of the way are these disciples who responded to the call, Andrew and Simon, fishing. And he says, I'll teach you how to be fishers of people. And they immediately followed him. Or James and John, the sons of Zebedee, out on their boat with their father, they immediately left their boat and their father in the, mit, in the net that they were mending. And they came just as quickly as the first two. And so Christ had challenged the Israelite community to reimagine their faith to one that was not dependent on strict adherence to the law, but an inversion of those beliefs and a trust and a belief in the salvific power of Christ who would sacrifice himself for them, but ultimately as an act of love, a new narrative for a new time. And so how do we know that a reimagined faith requires that I do more than what I'm doing now? I'm in church, I go to church, I go to Bible study, I've done the foundations class, I'm kind to the people that I meet, I give my tithes and offering, I volunteer to set up, I spread the word of God to the people that I meet on the street. Aren't I doing enough? 
I was moved when I saw the slide that said Cornerstone Church, a church without walls. And so even though you all don't own this property, this is the sanctuary that you congregate in, and it has walls. And so that, that tagline, that mission, is one that suggests that you are operative outside of the walls of this church or wherever it is that you congregate. And so that raises the question, what are the things that you are doing that go beyond the comfort of your prayer and of your worship and of your fellowship? And so to answer this question, you have to ask a question of yourself, if what I'm doing enough for Christ. Was it enough for him at the time? Was it enough for Christ to have pleasure, protection, and power? Jesus could have had it all, but he didn't. He sacrificed that comfort. Because the other thing that happened is after he had endured the temptation of Satan and had been in the desert for 40 days, the angels ministered to him. I don't know about y'all. I fasted once. The longest I fasted was 10 days. And it was rough. And after that 10 days, if angels would have come and ministered to me, I don't know that I would have said, okay, I'm done being ministered to. I would have said, keep on ministering to me. But Jesus denied that opportunity because there was this urgent mission of reconciliation, of redemption, of inversion that he had to pursue. His ministry was to challenge the status quo and the foregoing all of those things that he could have had, he had to get out of his comfort zone. And so we must forego our access to pleasure or protection or power to exercise our faith. Where are the places that we sit, the things that we do, the things that we have access to, the relationships that we're in that are comfortable to us, that bring us not just joy, but also bring us benefit, whether it is financial, whether it is academic, whether it is relational. Analyze those things and say, can I take something away from that relationship, from that engagement, to give my energies, my time, my resources, my skill set, my gifts, to those who are on the margins, to those who have been oppressed, to those who have been persecuted. Fasting and getting discernment from God on what it is God is calling you to do, how God is calling you to step out on faith, eliminating those distractions, centering yourself in prayer to hear clearly from the Lord. John the Baptist sacrificed himself to make way for the Lord, for the one that was to come. John the Baptist went to jail for the things that he did for Jesus. And ultimately, it was because of the decrease of John the Baptist that the stage was cleared for Jesus' ministry to begin. And so many of us are sitting in here bearing the fruits of the labor of so many who have come before us, whether it is because of the sacrifices and struggles that they have made or the money that they stored away or the violent conflicts that they had endured, whether it is in resistance to oppositional government or resistance to law enforcement. 
I think of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, whose birthday we just celebrated, or any number of political prisoners who are still in jail now. They weren't just fighting for themselves or a small group of people, but they were fighting for larger national, global ideas. Dr. King in his last years wasn't just concerned about the rights of black people, he was pushing America to be a better nation, to save the soul of the nation, challenging extreme materialism and extreme militarism and racism, those giant triplets that when they are joined together cannot be conquered, but he spoke truth to power, he put himself on the line, he threw his body on the gears of the machine to disrupt it. Where are we standing in the times of convenience? Are there protests going on? Are there organizations that need our support? Are there people out in the streets who are being arrested? While we sit comfortably watching, seeing the clips on our Facebook timeline or Snapchat, I think of a good friend of mine, a white woman, who recognizes that she has privilege, and she was at a protest with some allies, and because of the nature of the protest, law enforcement was there, and there was a black woman that they went after, and they started to handcuff her. My friend, this white woman, was standing right there next to her. They didn't touch her, and so she sacrificed herself and threw herself on the pile. Now, it didn't stop the police from arresting the black woman either, but at least she put herself in the mix to say, I'm not going to benefit from this privilege while my sister in the struggle stands here and is persecuted. Now, I'm not telling you all to go out and get arrested, but I am challenging you to think of how far you can push yourself to maintain a kingdom of righteousness and justice. Because for however unpopular and unsavory it may seem, there will come a time when history tells the story. And just like we love and revere Dr. King now, in the 1960s, he had a 23% favorability rating. People did not like his methods and tactics. People thought he was a terrible person for doing the things that he was doing and saying the things that he was saying. But now we laud and magnify him and celebrate him, which we should. But he had to take a chance, and so many others at the time. We have to step out of our comfort zone and exercise our faith and move beyond the confines of our prayer and our fellowship and our worship, which are important things to do. But ask yourself, is it enough? Are you called to be doing more? Was it enough for Christ to simply make an announcement about the kingdom? No. He called for repentance. He announced that the kingdom had come near, that this inverse kingdom, this is how it was going to be now. And in doing so, he had to get proximate to those who have been left out of power. Jesus' ministry began in a small place with people who the world said were small to make a big point. That this new kingdom that he's talking about is about the least of these. That is God trying to reconcile humanity back to himself. He says, repent, change your mind and your attitudes. We have to think differently about the people who are in the conditions of oppression, why they're there, and what God is calling us to do with them and for them.
Part of the reason I gave some of that historical context is because I hope that it can disabuse someone of some notion about why certain communities look the way that they do. That it's not just that certain people are lazy or don't work hard, but there are structural barriers and impediments that have prevented people from having the opportunities to succeed. And what are the benefits and privileges that you may have had that you can use, the skill sets and the gifts that you can use to try to dismantle that work in collaboration with the people who are being oppressed to further advance their cause and their struggle? Out in Oakland not too long ago, there were four women who were homeless and there was a bank that owned this vacant house. The bank was in Los Angeles. These four black women were from Oakland and they had beginning, begun to occupy the house and they occupied it because they didn't have any place to live and they needed shelter for their children. And the bank began a move to get them out of the house. And so the community stood in support. Black, white, Latinx, Asian, everybody was there to defend them. And the bank got upset and they sent the sheriffs and the sheriffs saw the huge sea of people that were standing in defense of them. And so they called the local uh, sheriff's department to reboot and they came back with armored vehicles and armed soldiers to evict four unarmed, homeless black women who were occupying a vacant property that a bank all the way in Los Angeles owned and didn't care about. But it was because of the collective action of many that stood in solidarity with a few that now the bank is reconsidering its position and finding a way to make that home available for those women. We have to get proximate with those who have been excluded from power. If anybody uh, has read Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, you'll know that he talks about proximity and how important it is because it helps us not only recognize what has happened to other people, but it also helps us recognize our own shortcomings and how much we are broken people as well. Don't cheat and just go see the movie. The movie was great, you should go see the movie, but definitely get the book and read the book too because it says so much more. And so we have to change our thinking. If we are truly to be followers of Christ, when Christ began his ministry, when he comes in on Luke chapter four, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because it has anointed me to proclaim the good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoner, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set the oppressed free. That's what Jesus came to do. What are we doing? Are we doing that? Is God calling us to do that? Was it enough for Jesus to go alone? He didn't start his ministry alone. He invited disciples to come along with him all along the way. So we got to get squatted up. When we know who Jesus is, we're ready to go with him and the others to make the ultimate sacrifice. Word had spread who Jesus was. As I was reading the scripture, I was just like, these, these guys just left what they were doing? Some random dude walks up and says, hey, you want to come with me? And they're like, okay, cool, I'll come. Like, really? That's, that's, that's what we're doing now? I'm working, man. You see me mending my nets. I'm on a boat. I'm here with my pops come with you? Okay, y'all, just come. That's probably not how it went. 
Jesus was born, there was like they were killing all these kids, like so somebody knew that somebody was special, right? Because Herod said, well, if there is the Messiah, the king, we got to kill all the kids because he was born in this age range. And Jesus fled to Egypt, but when he came back, right, John the Baptist baptized him. An angel came down and said, this is my son who I am well pleased. So word had spread that Jesus is here, so they had to know who Jesus was. So when he showed up, it wasn't just like, I don't know who this man is, but I'm just going to follow him. I mean, maybe there's the, the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it will certainly move in your life, right? Uh, but I think that it, it suggests that there was a little more at work here. So we need to know who Christ is, how he shows up in our lives, what his demands of us are, what his reign of righteousness and justice really means for our lives, for our situation, for the things that we have access to, to the gifts and skills that we have been blessed with and how we can use them so when we're called by Christ, we know the call when we hear it and we can take it and accept it and respond immediately. Not in a couple minutes, but Immediately, I, I got a little story and I'm gonna wrap up. I, I, I don't know about any of you, but I love Auntie Annie's pretzels. Okay, yeah, oh, look. so there's, I work downtown and in South Station, there's the Auntie Annie's kiosk and I just, I love those soft, warm, salty pretzels with the sweet mustard sauce and like, so I'm trying to get home to be with my wife and if I had an early lunch, not a late lunch, but early lunch, so by 5, 6, 7 o'clock, I'm hungry. And I was like, okay, let me see if I can time this because I got to get to the red line. And I, I just know that if it says, Braintree train approaching, like, I can't go get the pretzel. <laughs> because the Braintree train is at hand. It's not like five minutes away, 10 minutes away, even two minutes away. I've done that before. It's like, it'll be here in two minutes. I can do that. Like run to the kiosk, get back downstairs, have a pretzel and be on the train like, ah. But when it says approaching, it means it's at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not like we've got 10 minutes to go grab a pretzel. It's time to act now. And so as we think and discern what it is God is calling us to do, know that the kingdom is at hand. And so finally, I ask you, Cornerstone, what is it that you do? Now, in colloquial parlance, particularly in southern vernacular, telling someone to get denotes the imperative nature of your request. I remember as a child spending my summers with my aunt down in Savannah, Georgia, and it was hot. And the air conditioner was inside, and it was hot outside. And I was from Denver, Colorado, so I wasn't used to that type of heat. And I would be running back inside to get cool and then going back outside. And my aunt would say, quit running back in and out of the house because you're letting all the cool air out. And I wasn't listening because I was hot, so I would come back in and get cool. And so finally, she told me, look here. You're either going to stay in or you're going to go out. No, it wasn't, staying in wasn't even an option. It was like, you're a kid. Go outside and play. So she was just like, you're going to have to stay outside and quit running back and forth in this house. 
and I was standing there dumbfounded. And she pointed at me, gave me that look, and she said, now get. And so as we sit here today, and I stand here telling you that you need to get out of your comfort zone, that you need to get proximate with those who have been excluded from power, and that you need to get squatted up, I'm looking at you and I'm saying, now get. Amen. Thank you.